morning everyone <laughs> welcome back welcome back to chapter 9 the, the easy trip <laughs> the easy trip on chapter 9 uh, i don't know about you but for me it's not that easy <laughs> so let's take a few minutes in settling our body and mind Let's now cultivate the merit will. Since we are going to say the homage to Manjushri, imagine the presence of Manjushri in the space in front of us. Think of him as the personification of the wisdom of all the Buddhas. As it is always the case with any quality of the Buddha, it is always integrated with all the rest of the excellent qualities, all in full consummate blossoming. While emphasizing the wisdom part of the Buddhas, think of it being fully, completely complemented by all the rest of the positive qualities in full consummate state. Think of the relevance of visualizing Manjushri in relation to the theme of wisdom that we are going to explore and study through this ninth chapter. Think of all the lineage masters in general and that of the wisdom the lineage in particular, 
including Shantideva. Including Shantideva on the way to our present teachers. While thinking of them, think of the kindness by which we have received this teaching. Kindness, not just in passing down the lineage, but also putting the whole practice, taking on the whole practice, implementing it, realizing them, and thus passing on the teaching. We may say, live to their subsequent masters all the way to the present teachers. Visualize ourselves being surrounded by fellow sentient beings, filling the whole space around us, all in human forms, yet at the same time undergoing their own respective predicaments associated with their realms and state of birth, particularly let our attention go to those in the lower realms of their plunged in sufferings, almost unendingly. Think of how even the rest of us temporarily in higher realms, so long as we remain under the grip of the afflictions and the particularly rule in ignorance and the subsequent sufferings that they entail, our condition relatively of some comfort is only a temporary one. Think of how there's a need to relieve all sentient beings from the suffering, and how the key lies in cultivating the wisdom, of course, integrated with other method aspect qualities, but the most instrumental component of the path ultimately to address the root of the sufferings lies with cultivating wisdom. Thinking along these lines and also adding your own inputs in this, feel more enthused. I'm grateful for session together. and generate a determination to make the most of it. Likewise, think of all sentient beings joining us and benefiting from this discussion, sharing reflections that will follow from there, which will then initiate the process 
gradually passing through the process, through the procedure, traversing the path all the way to full awakening. Let's now say the homage together. Let's sit for a while holding Bodhicitta in our mind, the aspiration to attain full awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. Shoring up our motivation of bodhicitta with our reflections on the samsari condition that we all are in. Thinking of the kindness of sentient beings. irrespective of the levels of confusion that we are caught in. How all the aspects of the path that need to be cultivated the wisdom, understanding reality kind of stands out in being the most instrumental in the ultimate. In eliminating the root of all sufferings, with our good attitudes, benevolent attitudes such as love, compassion, bodhicitta, With their force behind our spiritual yearning and spiritual journey, the main impetus that will move us ahead is the wisdom realizing reality, both in terms of the mundane wisdom of reality and understanding reality, as well as the super mundane wisdom of understanding reality. The former wisdom takes the form of understanding the working of causality in general, more particularly the causality leading ourselves into suffering. <coughs> 
and out of suffering. And then the later wisdom of realizing emptiness, or the reality, in its most ultimate form, is the supermundane wisdom. And that is crucial, and ultimately, not just exposing ignorance, but even going further and uprooting it from our continuum, from the grossest level to its subtler level, including the subtlest tracks of stains that it might otherwise leave in the mind. As part of our motivation, along the line of bodhicitta, let's also determine, feel determined to pursue our path so that we could generate this wisdom within us, develop it, and bring it to a complete fruition. Likewise, we'll be able to do that for all sentient beings once we ourselves have achieved it. Let's dedicate the session dwelling on the topic of wisdom. Towards that end, so that we could attain full awakening and place all sentient beings in that same state, bringing them to a state of full, consummate realization of the wisdom. There's such a strength that doesn't leave any respect ignorance or its offshoots of any kind ever exist in our continuum. Yeah, one one thing to remind is that when we deal with the topic of wisdom, we would always come across what the opponents say, what their positions are. That's not because the main aim of pursuing this understanding and insight into the wisdom is to only address acquired misunderstandings around the ultimate reality, be that in our own mind or in the minds of others. But rather that these positions of the so-called the opponents or the, the so-called realists who are to be 
refuted. They present the opportunity to approach this innate, innate grasping in us by way of presenting their seemingly or as seemingly reasoned supported by reasoning and reality yet misconstrued understanding of how things actually exist they present a a viable platform to address this topic those who wouldn't have any such positions the so-called who have been who have not been influenced by philosophy or philosophical minded in coming up with such strengths of their own this for now not that easy access to address this problem because they don't see it as a problem nor do they have any of any of their positions regarding that so that's how this needs to be viewed and thus feel grateful that there are position holders like this by which we could approach and proceed on this path of sorting things out. In a way, when we deal with these, these positions of this so-called chigul, of the so-called opponents, we are indirectly dealing with the ultimate innate grasping within us by way of addressing the what we in Tibetan call capture, by way of addressing the bigger picture or a pic or, or a position that kind of covers it, though it is not the exact one, but it covers it and it is kind of a pervader, it's, it's wider in scope. When the wider in scope is addressed, everything that is subsumed in it will be also indirectly affected. Although just merely getting rid of or addressing the acquired misunderstandings about the reality, just merely addressing that in reality or in actuality also addresses the ultimate the ultimate position or ultimate uh, object of the innate uh, innate uh, grasping yet at the same time that is not the act that's not the end of the journey rather it needs to be then pursued so much so that eventually, not only in our intellectual understanding, it will be addressed. What would be the position of the innate grasping would be addressed, but it needs to be then integrated, internalized, so that it can then actually uh, have a face up with the innate grasping within us. Nonetheless, the approach 
of uh, addressing the positions of the so-called realists is very crucial, and that's it's almost like the only way by which we could uh, make an inroad in eventually into the realm, if we will, of the innate grasping. So keeping that in mind, we are uh, right now We are right now dealing with uh, the with the stage laid out in terms of uh, what is to be expected in this text, in this chapter rather, uh, in terms of the the ultimate reality, the notion of ultimate reality from the Prasangika point of view. Uh, with that stage laid out, uh, two kind of uh, Further our journey into that, uh, these objections from the uh, opponents or from the detainment holders with differing position, they are presented, and they are kind of uh, they are they are presented, and uh, and thus. The initial question was, this thing about things having no intrinsic existence doesn't make sense, and and that there's no such thing as anything lacking inherent existence. Even if there were to be, it cannot be established through any reasoning in a convincing way. And even if, if we, you, one, we, one could uh, establish it uh, through reasoning or whatnot, but in actual practical life, it would not have any uh, value as such, because by buying into it, it would be equal to denying everything, and thus, by denying everything, you cannot get anything done. So those are like the uh, oppositions being presented, and they kind of uh, kind of speak to ourselves from our initial, uh, what do you call, initial impression of. of this disposition that things lack inherent existence, almost in a very radical form, saying things do not exist in and of themselves, which is quite understandable. But from their side, in the to the effect that they have, they are ultimately nothing but merely designated from the subjective side, where we find difficulty in situating causality, interdependence, in the midst of such a position. And thus it speaks very clearly of where our misunderstanding is. We tend to go either to one extreme or to the other extreme, and uh, seem to have difficulty finding our balance in understanding the, uh, the notion correctly. So, from these oppositions, it will become clear and will also help in fine-tuning eventually our understanding of, of what is being uh, pursued and what is being established. So let's ho uh, hope that, that that will be the case in our uh, journey, including myself.
So we are we just finished stanza five, and we are entering into stanza six, right? Okay. Yeah, in between we didn't make any inroad in terms of moving uh, or pushing uh, extra stanzas. Uh, we did fill in some uh, things that needed to be put in place in terms of background understanding like that. So, before we do that, we look at stanza, the second half of the stanza four and stanza five, which kind of covers what I just mentioned earlier. This is the position of the realist. By the way, we are using this term realist uh, in a very limited way, just borrowing this term to serve our purpose, but we have to be very, uh, we have to be very, we have to be aware that uh, this has only limited uses here, not to be uh, understood as the same term as used in Western philosophies, but not where this actually came from. So here we are using it almost like a placeholder to refer to the proponents or the schools of philosophical tenets from Chitramatra all the way down to Vaipashika, and it could include, even include non-Buddhists also, who hold the position that things need to have, things definitely, necessarily have to have objective reality for them to be the way they are, like that. Rather, their positions compared with the Buddhists is even grosser. Um, not in a deprecating sense, but grosser in the sense of how, oh, what do you call how uh, how they see things to have not just subtle levels of objectivity, but in a very gross sense of such such as being totally unchanging, permanent, independent, etc. So, uh, so in terms of from the perspective of things lacking objectivity, uh, those positions will be even much more coarser or grosser, and then it gets fine-tuned a little bit, but not completely uh, removed as we move up the ladder, eventually going past the Chitta Matra, even into Madhamika, the school, the sub-school within it, the Sautantaka Madhamika, still, still holds on to uh, some level of objectivity, though not as gross, gross as uh, the lower tenets let alone uh, those of the uh, non-Buddhist position, no, position holders. So there, these, the lines say, actually, that's, yeah, that's the actual line from where the reputation of the position of the other uh, tenure holders begin. And there, it is addressing the position of the realists in general, not specific 
to either Vaibhashika, Sautantrika, or Chittamatra, but all of them together. It's interesting when, I, when we use the term realist, we were to go by its English uh, connotation, uh, etc. Then we might as well include uh, Sautantrika Madhimika in this category. But we are not doing it because we are using the term realist only to uh, correspond with the Tibetan term Nguemawa. Nguemawa. Nguemawa means Nguwa uh, Tembaramawa. Let's say, who, who say things, phenomena or things exist truly. For the lack of a better term to say it. But, but this is not supposed to mean that if, the, if things lack truly, things do not exist at all, or things only exist falsely. In a way, we could even say things exist falsely. <laughs> but so there we are not, so here we are not using the term realist to correspond with that, not so much in terms of what it actually amounts to, what it actually means. But uh, along with what it means, we are uh, using this term to kind of uh, kind of uh, serve for this Tibetan term Tembarachuba. So this this Sautantrika Madhimikas just happen to say just happen to have no 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 uh, interest or no liking in saying things have true existence. So, so they just happen to be saying that things do not exist truly. Yet at the same time, they do linger on to, uh, and they do hold on to uh, what they think is more subtle uh, than true existence yet amounting to some kind of objectivity. So they hold on to that. So in reality, they could also be included in this category of realists, but here we're using it uh, in a technical sense to only correspond with the Tibetan term Tembar, uh, Tembar Mawa, proponents of existence. And they just happen to say that nothing exists truly except things exist inherently, intrinsically, by their own nature, but not truly. <laughs> so, uh, so that just happened to be the case here. So in any way, for the next uh, several stanzas, up to stanza, yeah, stanza 14, uh, we'll be addressing the position of the realists in general. And then from there, we then move on to attacking specifically the position of the Chittamatras. So again, we have to appreciate the fact that they are, they are uh, actual uh, position holders who serve as an opponent here. Because of that, the, 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 task, of, uh, the task of identifying the affliction, the ignorance, identifying the grasping, self-grasping in us, and in exposing it, uh, seeing through it becomes easier. Otherwise, if no one were to hold any such position, then uh, no one were to hold any such position, and are supported by the, what they think is reasoning, evidence, 
etc., etc. Then it will be a little difficult to even bring up this topic of things lacking inherent existence uh, in a in a what do you call uh, clear cut, uh, more uh, palpable way. So the initial opposition was that uh, so-called thing, the, the so-called things lacking inherent existence, the so-called empty of inherent existence doesn't exist at all. If it does, it cannot be established at all. Even if it were to be established and convinced uh, upon, yet in actual reality it would have nothing to do. So that was the uh, main position, because that's the shared position of the realists. Because for realists, they think that things necessarily, things must exist truly for them to exist. They kind of lump the two together, they collate the two together. Existence equals to true existence, true existence equals true existence. There cannot be existence uh, any other way. So we are not able to kind of uh, tease them apart. They just don't see them, see how it is possible to tease them apart and retain existence, but give up to existence. And even if someone were to make, uh, someone were to succeed in kind of uh, intellectually convincing uh, or teasing them apart and convincing that they see that in the actual reality, the way it functions, it functions by virtue of things having an, uh, true existence. Otherwise, that would mean things do not exist, and thus there would be no interaction, no, uh, no functioning, nothing happening. So that clearly brings up the, the what do you call the, the topic of this, the topic of disagreement, the topic of, uh, yeah, disagreement. So the stanza reads, by means of examples accepted by both emptiness, by both emptiness is established, saying that no emptiness can be established, and that can be established uh, by means of the examples that you realists yourself accept. And that's the examples that we all, we, the Prasankikamadamikas, also accept. So, by way of uh, using the examples accepted by both, there's a means of establishing emptiness. Not only that emptiness is uh, not existent, but it can also be uh, proven or established. And that too, do not have to, uh, do not have to look for far-fetched means, but rather, uh, the examples, the very examples that we both uh, accept. Then, then, then the uh, realists say that even if one were to succeed in establishing emptiness, establishing things lacking inherent existence, uh, even if that were to be established, but in reality that cannot function, that cannot be, have any role whatsoever, because both of us are talking of proceeding along the path in training and and gaining uh, realizations. 
if things were to be empty of inherent existence, then none, none of those can happen, none of those can be possible. And that's what is being addressed in the second line. Unanalyzed, the practitioners engage in trainings for the sake of the result. This is very crucial, unanalyzed. Sometimes we may think that when we analyze things that do not exist, there is some nuance to be brought in there. It doesn't mean that as soon as we, exam we establish, we examine the thing, the thing actually becomes non-existence. In the face of that analysis, the thing recedes, the thing fades away. But as soon as you kind of recede back, zoom out, zoom out of the analysis, it will be there. Not only it will be there then, but in the very midst of our analysis, things are already there, except not in the eyes of the analysis. And that shows that, it shows not that things do not exist. Things do exist, but not in the way we, we assumed it to be inherently existing. Because in the face of that analysis, what in the face of that analysis, uh, what is actually uh, established as non-existence is inherent existence. If things were to inherently exist, then that kind of analysis should bring us closer and closer to seeing the inherent existence. But but it doesn't. So inherent existence, which in the way doesn't exist at all, it happens to be the only casualty. Not the, not the conventional reality. But in the face of that analysis, even conventional reality also fades away. Not because it has been rejected, but because, that's, but because that exists only contingently, without any inherent existence. So, unanalyzed. So, when we speak of practitioners engaging in trainings and also uh, attaining results, they do that. They practice it by they they practice it by not at, at every time worried if it exists inherent or not. They practice it on the basis of things being merely contingently existing. Things are contingently existing, and they accept that. On the basis of that, they practice it. Whatever paths they generate, whatever cultivations they do, they do so uh, within the web of interdependence. They do not have to seek any inherent existing path or something to then progress on. So that's the reason why, since things exist, unanalyzed in the, this is a little tricky, right? When we say unanalyzed, things exist unanalyzed. What happens when it is as analyzed? They do not exist. That's a little uh, mistake there. In the face of that analysis, it doesn't exist. And this shows that it doesn't exist inherently. Because if it inherent existence were to be found, that kind of analysis should bring it clearer because that's what the analysis is looking for. And when it doesn't find it, when it should be findable on such analysis, but doesn't find it, it means it doesn't exist. Whereas the contingently existing phenomena was not in the first place being sought by the wisdom. The wisdom was only looking for an inherently existent cup or whatnot, and it doesn't see it. And that's what the casualty is. And not the cup itself, because the cup by virtue of its being dependently related, it's not findable in the first place at all. 
And it's no surprise that it is not found when analyzed. But if how it exists to us, how it appears to us as independent existence, we have to be actually existing, then that kind of analysis should bring it even closer and cl clearer and clearer, whereas it doesn't. And that's the reason why the inherent, the, the inherent existence. It's, it is quite interesting and also intriguing. Quite, uh, it's in the, what do you call this? Interesting also to say inherent existence is the casualty. Inherent existence doesn't exist at all. We cannot say the grasping at inherent existence is the casualty. Yeah, because it exists. But by revealing, by, by yeah, by, by denying it, it's, it's, it's object of apprehension. Then indirectly, the grasping is hurt. Okay. So that's being addressed. And then the next stanza in the fifth one, common world sees functional things and conceives them to be truly existent, not like an illusion. In this regard, there is a dispute between the yogis and the common world. So the point of contention is not that things exist, but that we hold different positions in terms of how things exist. The common world, the common world here, we could include all the realists, including the non, including those who are not influenced by philosophy. We go by our daily life, but we are all very much uh, uh, kind of uh, banging on the uh, belief, on the trust, unquestioned trust that things exist, things must exist inherently. So the common world be those who have their own, uh, what do you call, philosophically founded position to that effect of projecting in an existence, or that of others who do not have any particular position but kind of are banking on that kind of a uh, belief or that kind of a, a assurance. They see functional things and conceive them to be truly existent. It's not that things truly exist, but they conceive it. They see it to be completely inseparable from existence. And thus, even though they may speak of such examples as illusions, dreams, and whatnot, they do not apply it in this respect. And they do not apply it to, the exist, to how things exist uh, in this subtle uh, sense. Rather, they use it in, in other contexts. Whereas the Prasangik Madhamikas, they see things like illusion, even in this context of how they appear to be existing inherently, but they do not. And not merely confine it to applying on grosser levels. So that's where the dispute is. Dispute is not what a cup, whether a cup is existing or not. That's what they thought that the dispute was. When they thought that things do not exist in truly, truly, they were almost they were almost thinking like the Prasangikas are, are total nihilists, nihilists. They're denying everything, right, including themselves. Yeah, the consequences could go so absurd.
<laughs> Whereas the Prasangika Madhimika are making this clear distinction between existence and true existence, and saying existence and upholding existence, but not inherent existence. But the realists are not that easy to be. They're not that easy to be, yeah, convinced. Particularly when they have this position with which they have thought through, have even scriptures backing it, have thought through, and have what they thought has sound uh, philosophical reasoning backgrounds, uh, foundations, whatnot. They're not that easy. So sometimes the philosophical tenets, philosophical affiliations make us hard-headed. And, but at the same time, they are willing to listen and to see things, but not easily. Uh, they're not gullible. <laughs> yeah. But uh, once yes. you point to them and clarify things and convince them, uh, then, yeah, things could move on. So they continue with, these are the objections from the, the realists in, realists in general, all realists all together would be seen as presenting these uh, objections. And, and maybe you could think, it may look like it would, okay, maybe uh, it will look like for a while these other realists, except for Chitramatra, they kind of back off a little bit and take some rest. And then let the Chitramatras kind of uh, take on and uh, still face the Prasangya Madhamikas from stands of 15 onward, I think. Yeah. But for now, we have to put up with the objection of the... Oh, we have to be thankful to their objections and see whether some of them kind of align with ours or not. <laughs> Because it's only in the face of such clear, pronounced objections that, yes, this approach, this topic could be approached. Otherwise, we could be just having a discussion on a blank, uh, blank sheet. So they insist from, now we are on stanza six. This is refuting contradiction with direct perception. They say, how come you say forms do not exist inherently? Can't you see forms? What could be more real than that? <laughs> or do you mean we're just having hallucination? We're just hallucinating seeing form, but forms do not exist at all? It could be either of these two. There's no other way. Even direct perce perception of form and so on are valid cognition only to the veiled reality established through conventionalities and are not valid cognitions. Yeah, so basically they're saying form is something that everyone is able to see. But how come you can say that forms do not exist inherently? That's equal to saying they do not exist, whereas they are empirically uh, true to us. 
and that we can see them, we have valid consciousness, uh, registering them on the basis of that, we can undertake readily uh, viable functions in finding them, in picking them, in using them, etc. How come you say they do not exist inherently? So here, the 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 uh, uh, response is even direct. So the so their opposition, their objection is kind of assumed here. Is kind of uh, yeah. It's not is 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 not uh, captured in the words itself, but it is kind of uh, assumed there. So they say by your position of things having no inherent existence it would contradict the direct perceptions, which are valid to direct perceptions, seeing things such as form, etc. How would you explain that in view of your position? So the response is beginning from the sixth, stanza six, even direct perception of form and so on are valid cognition only to the veiled reality established through conventionalities. and not valid cognitions to the ultimate. Is that how your copy reads? Your copy reads, even direct perception of form and so on, and only view conventionalities and are not valid cognitions of the ultimate. Okay, that's fine. So, so the Prasangika's response is, of course, we also accept that there are direct perceptions that uh, perceive form and so on, and they are valid as well, and they are uh, reliable based on which we can go about our life, etc., as you say. But their validity, their validity, their ability to stand up in the face of the consciousness is only on the level of the conventionality. Only on the level, only on the level, the Tibetan term is trakpa. It's almost like only renown. Uh, only, sometimes it is translated as renown. Uh, it's saying that, yes, the things such, the empirical things such as form and etc. are validly cognized. But who cognizes? What cognizes them? The cognition, the conventional consciousness cognizes them, not the ultimate con consciousness. So they are valid cognition only to the veiled reality established through conventionality. They are valid only to uh, conventional consciousness, which so the so the so, so the. Power here is when we speak of conventional consciousness, conventional consciousness do not engage in uh, the analysis that we talked about. They do not question further beyond the conventional reality of things, beyond the conventional, uh, what do you call, beyond the conventional status of them. They do not. And, and because of that, they do not lose the objects. They can, they can, uh, they can register it. Based on that, we can function in life. And that kind of a registering of the object by conventional, uh, 
formation of consciousness is going along, is going along the conventional acceptance, is going along the conventional, is going along the going along the uh, what do you call the conventionality going along the conventionality and not uh, so thus being content with uh, merely registering them in their uh, what do you call uh, conventionally configured form and not not questioning that and not uh, yeah, not conscioning that, not being discontented with that, but rather uh, kind of uh, staying with that. And that's the reason why uh, to such a uh, corresponding consciousness, uh, things such as forms, etc., are validly registered, and based on that, we can go on functioning. But that same form that you're talking of, being so unquestionably perceived by the uh, eye consciousness and whatnot. When it is uh, uh, put through analysis in the way we spoke of, then even that will not be able to withstand such an analysis. In the face of such an analysis, even the form could be lost. Not because form is not there, but because the analysis is not being con con contented with the uh, conventionality, but pushing through pushing further in the hope of finding some kind of intrinsic cupness or intrinsic something. And thus, since it is not findable, analysis searching for it would not register it, would not, would not, would, would not uh, see that. So from this it becomes slightly clearer, right? Clearer, like the thing that we see is not saying that when we see cups, when we see forms, but not, uh, that, that that consciousness itself is wrong. Is not seeing that. Nor is our pursuance of things being empty of inherent existence uh, aimed at denying uh, the validity of such a registration, such a contact with the object and subject. Even direct perception of form and so on are, are so on. Only view conventionalities and are not valid cognition to the ultimate. Yeah, on, on the one hand, it's also saying that the consciousness that registers, that our daily, day-to-day -day consciousness is registering objects, and along with that, we function in life. The consciousness themselves are something that are content with the conventionality. They are not consciousnesses that are always probing into uh, the ultimate nature of things, probing beyond the conventional, uh, conventional, what do you call, uh, contingent nature. And because of that, into such consciousnesses, it is no surprise that objects such as form uh, uh, could stand up and could be uh, engaged with. But when it comes to but when it comes to uh, ultimate reality, when it comes to whether or not forms exist inherently or not, and a search will be pursued in that respect, then even form will uh, break down. 
and turn out to be false. False in the sense that they were appearing like they have an objective reality of their own in a concrete, uh, almost palpable, findable, pointable way. But upon analysis, they will fail to uh, hold on to that. So in that respect, even forms and so on uh, are false. Like worldly acceptance of that which is unclean and so forth, as clean and so forth. Here, there is a reference below in, a, in another, yeah, in, in stanzas 8, where it comes back, where it says, the valid company, no, no. Mm, yeah. Yeah, otherwise, their discernment of the uncleanliness of a woman's body, for instance, would be undermined by the common world. So it is uh, in that context. And His Holiness very often uh, addresses uh, the audience studying uh, Shantideva's text, where there are references to uh, women in apparently, uh, in seemingly deprecating ways saying that we have to understand it within the context. It's not that he is or he was misogynistic, <laughs> but rather he was addressing monk audience. If he were to address non-audience, he would as well be deprecating, uh, speaking in deprecative uh, language with regard to the male body, because the main address, object to address is our afflictions, including attachment and whatnot. And so he says that wherever it is possible for any reference to women to be, uh, irrespective of the audience, to be applied to both genders, it should be used like that, understood like that. But where it is uh, uh, particularly about women, then it should be understood in that context and could uh, kind of revert back uh, to addressing the male audience. Uh, female audience in terms of uh, addressing their afflictions. So, but here, what it's being said is, form and so on are false, like worldly acceptance of that which is unclean, and so forth as clean and so forth. So clean, unclean and so forth here means it refers to the four, uh, four perverted views with regard to, yeah, for this discordant, distorted. okay, for distorted con conceptions, for distorted conceptions taught in Buddhism, uh, very, uh, what do you call, aligned with the four, four seals, the first of the four seals, yeah, the first of the four seals, uh, or sometimes we speak of the four distorted uh, conceptions and the four correct conceptions, yeah, of which uncleanliness, which is the empty aspect of it, is specified here, but then it applies equally to permanence, uh, selfhood, pardon? Yeah. Yes, pleasure, happiness, respect. Thank you. But then it brings another topic. Here the example is, form 
it's you should not be surprised to find form being talked of as false, uh, while at the same time being upheld as a, a reality in the face of conventional consciousness. Uh, because uh, just as in the world, uh, people, or just as in the world, or just in the world of male uh, practitioners, they see uh, women's body, which are unclean, as clean and impermanent, as permanent, as lack of selfhood, as having selfhood, uh, as uh, which are dukkha in nature, as being uh, uh, pleasurable in nature. Uh, so likewise, form two, yes, yes, form two is false in the face of uh, uh, consciousness analyzing the ultimate nature. But then he goes, but then this is tricky here, the, 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 the uh, comparison being brought up is one is uh, one is an unfounded uh, perception, the other is not. But then uh, the comparison is how, in the face of some other consciousness, uh, things could be things thought of as being really real could turn out to be false. And and for that, the example is how. Uh, beings project a women's body as clean, whereas in, in reality they are unclean. In a way, they are unclean in the same way as male bodies are, except uh, here the audience being the monks, that was more relevant in, in, in uh, speaking in those terms. So, the, so there, are, there is a parallel being drawn here. But then, Oh yeah, yeah. In this regard, yeah. In this regard, it is pointed out that the consciousness that sees forms and whatnot, those are conventional consciousness. They do not see the reality, ultimate reality. And thus, for them to see, see forms, etc., is not uh, is 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 not a proof or is not a. Uh, yeah, it is is not a proof that forms should exist ultimately, or they should have, a, they, yeah, they should exist inherently, or they should exist ultimately, because the consciousness that registers them are not consciousnesses that see reality as they are ultimate reality. Because if it were to be so, if the eye consciousness that sees form were to be true, not just to their conventional nature, but also to their ultimate nature, then everyone would understand ultimate na nature. There would be no need for pursuing and uh, chasing, uh, pursuing training in attaining Arya's, uh, Arya's consciousness, Arya's wisdoms. So that's one, one way of uh, approaching it also. So there can be valid cognitions, but valid cognitions either to a conventional truth, unconventional reality, or to an ultimate reality. And that needs to be separated.
I cannot lump them together and say, if one registers any object, it should be equivalent to registering their ultimate nature. There are statements from the King of Concentration Sutra, as well as from entering the Middle Way, where it uh, addresses this point. If I knows um, air, etc., where to be uh, valid cognition with regard to the ultimate nature of their respective objects, then there is no need for Arya's wisdom, Arya's path. Because they are not uh, valid cognitions with regard to the ultimate nature of reality, only registering the conventional aspects of them, and thus there is this there's this room for ignorance to creep in and and build up, and thus there's the need of pursuing the Arya's path separately to then uh, address the ignorance. Yeah, then I think with regard to this, there is another point. Yeah, so Alia Irba is saying, yes, we agree with you in saying that this consciousness is registered form, and to these consciousnesses, the form is valid object. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that form exists inherently, because when put through analysis to that effect, forms would also give up and would not be able to withstand it. And thus saying that the fact that forms appear to consciousness the way you're seeing, eye consciousness, etc., is only a matter of eye consciousness, form, form being, the Tibetan term is takpa, the form being, form being available, okay, let's just say form being available to uh, that consciousness, not by virtue of its having any inherent existence, uh, but by virtue of the consciousness registering its only conventional, uh, conventional, uh, way of formation, it is conventional way of formation that it is registering it. And thus it's a case of form being registered or being available to that consciousness on that level of conventionality. And then to that the example was being presented in this way, where, where the consciousness is mistaking the object. The, uh, that consciousness may see the object being unclean, or, or the object being clean, uh, and we can, uh, yeah, to that consciousness, the object may seem as clean, whereas in reality it is not, and thus the cleanness is only in the eyes of that consciousness, not in the object. So that kind of confuses them, saying, wait a minute, this availability of the form to the consciousness uh, doesn't pair up with the availability of cleanliness to that consciousness. One is mistaken, the other is not. So here, their, their mistake, that again, mistake in understanding Prasangika Madhimika's position is becoming clear. 
for them, when Prasanga Madhimika says things do not exist inherently, they, talk, they thought that it's equal to saying things do not exist. But then when they say that uh, through this consciousness, which is not proving the ultimate reality, to that consciousness, form appears, and that is enough for form to be existing. Then, then, they, they, then they thought, then they think that, oh, that means that consciousness that's seeing the object as clean is also valid, and that object should be clean. Or if that's not, then by presenting this as an, ob as an example, it's almost uh, suggesting that whatever the mind projects should be the case. And that's being cleared up, saying no, whatever the mind, whatever the mind sees is not necessarily what things should be. But the fact that things are what they are is only by virtue of consciousness seeing it. But not whatever consciousness sees should necessarily be that. This is a... Uh, and, and, and if we use the Tibetan term trakpa, then it becomes even more dramatic. Trakpa here means... Uh, oh, I cannot use the literal translation. Yeah. It usually means uh, renown. It's known. It's registered. The consciousness registers is as, as form, and that's enough for it to be formed. That's how they understood it. Whereas what the person meant was the consciousness that wasn't probing into the ultimate reality of the form was merely content being with the conventionality of the form, and that's enough for how a form exists. And then the example that, that the person gave by saying that even though the consciousness registered form as form, yet at the same time, that very form that being a, a registered by a conventional consciousness could be subject to being lost, could be subject to being unfindable when, when approached by ultimate reality. And that's showing this disparity between form being able to withstand in the in the eyes of a conventional consciousness, but not in the eyes of a ultimate consciousness. The example for that is this object of unclean, clean, unclean, the unclean object appearing as clean, saying using just one object and saying, just using that, using just one example, saying that that consciousness may register something, but it doesn't exist. The disparity about the disparity around form in terms of its being, it's, it, in terms of its being registered validly by a conventional consciousness, at the same time, being not able to withstand an uh, ultimate analysis, the two things, and, uh, one, one example is presented, just one example, that of seeing unclean objects as clean. So in, that, in, in, in the eyes of that, uh, yeah, in the eyes of that consciousness, it does register something, but it registers it wrongly. So what is there, it doesn't the what is, what is there is not registered correctly, and thus on that very same thing, there is this dichotomy 
disparity between being one thing and not being not being one thing and appearing another way. So that was enough for the prasangikamas to bring up at this point. But what they think the prasangikas are suggesting is that things it is enough. It, it's enough for any consciousness to project anything, and that would be enough for things to be. When, because even this mistaken consciousness projecting, uh, projecting uh, cleanliness on an unclean object, even that is considered viable. If that's viable, then, then, uh, if that's viable, then uh, what comes to what comes down uh, is that mere projection is enough for anything uh, to exist. So they kind of stretch the designation uh, aspect of it to kind of, to kind of, however you designate, things will become. So in the ultimate sense, okay, yeah. Where is this? Oh, okay. Yeah. Form and so on are false, like worldly acceptance of that which is unclean and so forth, as clean and so forth. Actually, there is a back and forth, back and forth discussion on that also. Takwahina. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I was presenting it a little differently. Earlier, on the basis, on on the question of how come you seem to be contradicting the direct perception, uh, the response was that, no, we are not contradicting the direct perception and validity of it when we say things do not exist inherently. Because valid cognitions that you are speaking of in relation to form, etc., are conventional consciousness that they do not uh, analyze the ultimate nature of things, and thus they should not, they do not have to lose their object and be able to upheld it, and and that that should also serve as a viable uh, basis for uh, functioning in the world. And there, the response was, yes, it is not in investigating ultimately, but just merely taking it as. Uh, in on the conventional level, where all that is, uh, where where all is happen, all that is happening is the consciousness registering the object, or the object being available to the consciousness. That the object kind of uh, resonates with the consciousness, not resonate. The object is available to the consciousness. Is renowned. Is known to the consciousness. In the face of the consciousness. Then the yeah. Then the response was, then how come if that consciousness is registering form as form, and how come form could still be existing falsely? Then it is saying yes, it exists. The falsity of its existence, the falsity of the way it exists, is becomes apparent when you put it in contact with an analyzing consciousness. Yeah, that that is the. Uh, that is the uh, response. And to that, the example was uh, that of uh, an unclean object being seen as uh, 
Nin. But there, uh, it it leaves it leaves the uh, it leaves the room for misunderstanding there again. That's what I was suggesting. Not that it is uh, what do you call it, directly addressed here. Let let me push this next one. The next one, this stanza seven. Yeah, uh, let me back up. So, so, so the as as the uh, stanza says, form and so on are false, like worldly acceptance of that which is unclean and so forth, as clean and so forth. So the example being presented here is only to the extent that this that the just that just as the consciousness or just as the distorted conception of something unclean being clean to that consciousness the cleanliness appears likewise to that consciousness conventional consciousness apprehending form that form only appears to it so that was the uh, so form appearing to a consciousness apprehending form doesn't rule out the form to be lacking in inherent existence and thus turning out to be false in the face of analytical uh, ultimate analyzing consciousness. And the example for that is just as this distorted conception of seeing something unclean as clean to that consciousness, cleanliness appears, but it is false. Likewise, to a eyes consciousness apprehending form to that consciousness because it is com- uh, 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 approaching just the conventionality of it, to that consciousness form appears and is valid, but that same form can be turned out to be un- false false and untrue in the face of an ultimate analysis. So that's the example there. I think uh, we should stop here. So from stanza seven, then uh, it's another refutation, saying what the Prasangika Madhimikas are saying contradicts with Buddha's own words. Likewise, there are three, four more objections uh, lined up, which kind of helps in clearing the clearing the dust a little bit in terms of fine tuning what the Prasangikas are. Uh, presenting, right? and how there could be uh, rooms for misunderstanding that needs to be uh, straightened up. I think we'll stop here. <laughs>